This episode is brought to you by PagerDuty. In an always-on world, teams trust PagerDuty to help them deliver a perfect digital experience to their customers every time. With PagerDuty, teams spend less time reacting to incidents and more time building for the future. From digital disruptors to Fortune 500 companies, over 12,000 businesses rely on PagerDuty to identify issues and opportunities in real time and bring together the right people to fix problems faster and prevent them from happening again. We're like the central nervous system for a company's digital operations. We can analyze digital signals from virtually any software-enabled system and help you intelligently pinpoint issues like outages as well as capitalize on opportunities while empowering teams to take the right real-time action. To see how companies like GE, Vodafone, Box, and American Eagle Outfitters rely on PagerDuty to continuously improve their digital operations, visit pagerduty.com. Welcome to episode 152 of the Greater Than Code podcast. I'm joined by my co-panelist, Shantae. Hello, everyone. Great to be here. Shantae Thurman here, and I'm going to introduce my fabulous co-panelist, Jess Kerr. Good morning. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you, Shantae. And I am here with Rain Henricks. Hello, everyone. It is my great pleasure to introduce our guest today, Professor Philip Wadler, or as I like to call him as of just now, Phil. <laughs> Phil is Professor of Theoretical Computer Science at the University of Edinburgh and Senior Research Fellow at IOHK. He is an ACM Fellow, a Fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, and Editor-in-Chief of the Proceedings of the ACM for Programming Languages. He is past Chair of ACM SIGPLAN and many other things I don't have time to read right now. Previously, he worked or studied at Stanford, Xerox Park, CMU, Oxford, Chalmers, Glasgow, Bell Labs, and Avaya Labs. He has an H-index of 66 with more than 24,000 citations to his work, which means he is, quote, a big deal. That's my editorialization. That's not in the Bible. <laughs> According to Google Scholar, yeah, he has contributed to the designs of Haskell, Java, and XQuery, and is co-author of Introduction to Functional Programming, my personal favorite Haskell book, XQuery from the Experts, Generics and Collections in Java, and Programming Language Foundations in Agda, which is new as of 2018. Welcome, Phil. Hi. What is your superpower and how did you acquire it? I think my superpower is that I'm not afraid of mathematics. One of my favorite quotes is from somebody, I think around the 1500s, who says, if you are trying to solve a problem and you can apply math to it and you don't, then it's like having a candle in your hand and looking for something in the dark, but not lighting the candle. Mathematics is what lets us find elegant and beautiful and clear solutions to things. And so my great joy is trying to take theory and apply it to practice and then use practice to say, well, what other bit of theory do we need? And the particular theory that underpins all of programming languages is something called lambda calculus. And I'm actually renowned for um, running around with this symbol on my chest. So this is like the Superman symbol, but the S has been replaced by a lambda standing for Lambda Calculus. So it's earned me the nickname Lambda Man. I run around dressed like this sometimes. And I, I love this little thing. This was actually made for me by some students. They 3D printed this symbol for me. So that's nice. amazing. The other superpower is having great students. <laughs> this might be our first legitimate superhero on the show. I'd say so. That's true. He has a costume and everything. And he wears it when he speaks at conferences and it's great. Okay, I'm blushing now. 
What shall we talk about? What's on your mind, Phil? What's on my mind? Well, what's most on my mind these days is uh, I used to be renowned for work I'd done with Haskell, and I still teach a first-year class for Haskell. I've got 460 students this year, which is amazing. But the class I really love is my class with 20 students, where I'm teaching with my new textbook, which is Programming Language Foundations in Agda. And, Tell us um, about Agda. So Agda is what Haskell wants to be when it grows up. <laughs> cool. So Agda is like Haskell, a functional language. Haskell has a type system. Agda has what are called dependent types. And the great thing about those is they're powerful enough that you can represent all the interesting bits of logic in your programming language. And there's this wonderful idea called propositions as types, which gives a correspondence. It says, anytime you have an interesting logic, okay, what are the components of a logic? Well, you've got propositions, which are things that you could be true or false. You've got proofs, which is if you have a proof of a proposition, then you know it's true, assuming your logical system is sound. And also they sometimes talk about simplifying proofs, which was important because it turns out that to show there's no proof of false, which is something you'd like to know, that's much easier to do if you look at proofs in simplified form. So we, you've got these components in logic. And then what do we have in computing? Well, we have types and we have programs which return values of the given type. Typically, a program might be a function. A function is itself a value. It's a value that if you give it a value, it will return another value. So it's all values all the way down. So you have types which describe these things. You have programs or terms. And then you have a notion of evaluation, which is just simplifying the term. And it turns out there's a one-to-one -one correspondence that preserves all the structure. So one-to-one -one correspondence that preserves structure is called an isomorphism. And what that means is propositions correspond to types. A proof of a proposition is like a program of that type. And when you simplify a proof, it's exactly like simplifying the program, that is evaluating the program. And it turns out this works for pretty much every interesting logic you can name and pretty much every interesting programming language feature you can name. There'll be some logic that captures it. So when I first saw this, I just thought, oh, it's a stupid trick that these things correspond. I didn't understand how broad and deep this idea was. But after a while, I realized it wasn't just a pun. It was the basis for my entire research career. So using this idea, because they have dependence, it turns out to quantifiers in logic. So if I want to say, for all x and y, x plus y is equal to y plus x, that becomes a type in my programming language. And a program of that type becomes a proof that addition is commutative. So I can write programs, and I can prove properties of these programs all in one place. And I find that really exciting. So I used to just write Haskell programs and hope I got them right, or maybe use Quick Check to test that I've got them right. But now I can write a functional program and prove that it satisfies its specification. I'm really excited about that. I'm really happy to have written a textbook about this and be teaching classes about it. Oh, so I have to tell you the name of the textbook. It's called Programming Language Foundations in Agda. And I have to tell you the URL, which is plfa.inf dot ed 
www.ac.uk. So in this correspondence, which is pretty exciting, it says that if you can write a program or a function to go from a certain set of types, parameters, to another type, then that type is true or it's attainable? Well, I'll give you one specific example of it, which might make this easier to understand. So in logic, I might say something like A implies B, right? Right. You probably all know enough logic that that's familiar. So what would that mean to say A implies B? Well, Is that a function from A to B? Exactly. It's a function that says, given a proof of A, I will return to you a proof of B. So is the instance of the type, is that a proof that the type exists? Exactly. The type is the proposition, and all of the things that have that type are proofs of the proposition. Oh, okay. So the, the actual like instances of that type are a proof. So if I have a type that is an array of length three, and I instantiate an array of length three, then sure enough, array of length three is a thing. Right. An array of length three. So arrays aren't that interesting in logic because what an array of length three of type A say, okay, that's three proofs of A. But in (laughs) logic, usually one proof is enough. You don't need to have three proofs of A. So it's boring to have multiple instances. I'll I'll give you another data structure. The pair type has two things in it. It has an A and a B, right? So we call these record types or pair types or what have you. And in logic, that corresponds to Conjunction. A and B. You, you gave right. it away. So I've you got said an A, B, a and pair. B. <laughs> yeah, the and is yes. the word there. Right. Exactly. You've got an A and you've got a B, so you've got a proof of A and B. So what does it mean to prove A and B? It means I've got two things in my hand. One is a proof of A and the other is a proof of B. And this and is um, constructivist, which means if you can prove something, you'd better show it to me. Right. So the interesting place where construction shows up is the only proof you can give that there exists an X such that X satisfies some property is to what would a proof of that be? Well, it's going to be a pair, what's called a dependent pair. The first thing, so say the property is P of X. Well, let's let's pick a property. Let's say X is a natural number. I want to assert there exists a natural number, which is even. Okay. So let's define the property of being even, first of all. What does it mean to be even? Well, there are two ways you can be even. You can either be uh, zero, so we know zero is even, or you can be the number n plus two, where you know that n is even. So even of n implies even of n plus two. And then add, I can write this all down as the definition of a type even. Okay, now I want to say there exists an x such that even of x Okay, I can prove that. And X that. is a natural number? Right, where X is in this case a natural number. So there exists a natural number X such that even holds for X. What would a proof of that be? Zero, and I already told you zero is even, so I just give you that piece of evidence or that part of the data type. Or you could give me four. And a proof that four is even. So right. the, so the value of four is even is a little bit harder. That says four is even because two is even because zero is even. So the values of this type are both a natural number and a proof that that number is even. Correct. So this is great. You can never prove something exists without actually getting a hold of it. And similarly for a disjunction. So disjunction means or. 
right? What would a proof of A or B look like? Well, it's going to be one of two things. It's either going to be a proof of A or a proof of B. We sometimes call these sums because let's say there, there were five different proofs of A and seven different proofs of B. How many possible proofs of the, are there of A or B? The sum of those. Right, 12. Because it's either going to be one of the five or one of the seven, and there are no other possibilities. It's a little confusing to people sometimes because a sum type is an or type. It's a disjunction. Yeah. It's a union type or an either. Whereas usually we use the word and associated with sum four and seven is 12. But that's completely different. Well, yeah, you have to use plus and be a little bit more precise. Right. But one of the nice things about mathematics is it is quite precise, right? There's no way in mathematics that you confuse plus, which acts on numbers, with conjunction, which acts on truth values. Right. And that precision is part of the turning on the light. Exactly. This is also much easier. Just using language, you can get confused. But if you think about it mathematically, it will keep it straight for you. Yeah, and that's very deliberate. Like, English is ambiguous for reasons, and there's great uses to that. Uh, But mathematics is very precise. And if you want to be precise, don't stick to English. That's fair. It's also much easier if, rather than thinking this through in your head, you can have a computer to help you get it right. Right. I've actually been teaching a class in theory of computing for years, and a researcher named Benjamin Pierce said, you know, it's better to teach this with a proof assistant, a a computer thing that will check your proofs for you. Because using a computer can be quite frustrating and annoying, but it does mean you get instant feedback when you've completed Mm. a proof. And that's very helpful for the students. So he collaborated with many other people and ended up writing a textbook called Software Foundations. And I taught from that for five years. And that He also wrote types and programming languages, right? That's right. He did. I taught from Software Foundations for about five years. And I thought, this. he uses a proof assistant called Coq. I hope that doesn't violate the harassment policy. C-O-Q, isn't it? C-O-Q, yes. So I hope it doesn't violate the harassment policy if I pronounce its name. But I, I taught from it for five years, and I decided, no. I don't want to use the same word. I want to use Agda. Agda will be much more beautiful. So I wrote my own textbook based on Agda. And I do find it much more fun teaching from that than um, from Software Foundation. Software Foundations is still a great book. It may be better for some people. But one thing in Coq is you have a separate language. Your proof is not a program in Coq. Your proof is a program that when you run it, gives you the program that you want that's the proof. So you're one step removed. And sometimes that's really helpful if you're trying to prove something that has a lot of trivial cases that you don't want to write out in full. But for just understanding proofs, I think it's easier to write the proof directly. So that was one of the advantages of moving from Software Foundations, which uses Coq, to my textbook, Programming Language Foundations, which uses So if I were to describe using a proof assistant for our listeners who maybe haven't, I would say it is like trying to have a conversation with a very pedantic but well-meaning friend. Um, Like you? Yes, with the emphasis on the very pedantic. That description is very good. But the other thing it's like is like a video game, because generally when you're doing a proof, you've got something you're trying to prove, and then you apply some proof rule and – 
say I'm trying to prove A and B. Then I apply the proof rule, and that says, okay, now I need to prove A and I need to prove B. A big proof breaks down into smaller proofs. Like it gives you side quests? Yeah, exactly. So the proof is what you call a goal, and then the smaller things you need to prove along the way are called sub-goals. And the way in which you do a proof with a proof assistant is you say, okay, here's the thing I'm trying to prove. I'll try proving it in this way. So like, say I'm trying to prove A or B, and I stare at it for a minute, I think, I think A is true. Okay. My goal was A or B, and my sub-goal is to just prove A. So I've decided that's what's going to be so here. Or I might be proving A or B implies C or D. And now I've got a function. I say, okay, well, let's look at my argument. Which was it, A or B? And then after looking, I say, okay, well, it's either going to be an A or B. If it's an A, I think C is true. But if it's a B, I think D is true. So now I've got sub-goals, show that A implies B, show that C implies D. So anyhow, you've got some proof, you're looking at it, and you've got some ways of breaking it down into sub-goals. So the way I think is the goal is sort of shambling towards you, and it's a zombie. And then you've got your proof rule, and you hit it on the head with the proof rule, this big hammer, and it breaks into two smaller zombies. Nah, that also sounds shuffling scary. towards you, called sub-goals. And then you hit those with more hammers, and so on. And eventually, it becomes obvious Oh, when like eventually they get small in, enough that you can step on them? In Cock, you say reflexivity, and in Agnes, you say Control-C, Control-A. <laughs> uh, but there's some standard trick that you use when it becomes obvious. So I refer to that as your shotgun, and that just blows the zombie away. The zombie's gotten small enough that you can blow it away with a shotgun, and it's gone. And then when you get all the zombies gone, and it says QED at the end, or in Agda, what happens is you type the command, and everything turns the right color, been writing in black, it all turns blue and red and green and so on. The keywords are blue, are green, and the defined things are blue, and the constructors are green. Everything gets its own color. And you have a little window at the bottom, and the window has nothing in it. It's really exciting that you've got this window with nothing in it, because that means you have no errors. You said when you get it right, then you get keyword highlighting? Yes. Yes, but when before it's all that, done, while you're trying to construct the program, you don't get keyword highlighting? Yeah. The ID it is incremental. Proof assistants are... Yeah, you can do it incrementally. You can get keyword highlighting along the way. So, so you're right. The exciting thing is not that it's in color, because often it'll, it'll be in color already. The exciting thing is this little window at the bottom with nothing in it. And, and when you hit that, it's like you killed off the last zombie. And in fact you get the exact same serotonin rush that you get when you're playing a video game, right? And you've killed off all the enemies. It's exactly the same thing. I, mathematics and proof assistance as, oh God, I have to argue with this pedantic friend, which is true. But when you win the argument, it's just like winning a video game. I don't have a math background, but this is making me think of my experience working with TypeScript. It sounds like it's a little bit like what you're talking about, but maybe not as formal or strict, but my experience with TypeScript is I'm getting in an argument with a pandantic friend. And in a lot of cases, my friend is sort of uh, holding me up over uh, technicalities that I know aren't important to what I'm trying to do. And that can sometimes be frustrating. But what I find is it forces me to, just like you were saying, sort of step back and step out of the assumptions that I'm making in my own head. And it sort of forces me to write something 
that, you know, if a compiler can understand it, uh, hopefully a person coming along who knows less about what I'm trying to do than I do, hopefully they can understand it too. And there's going to be a little bit less ambiguity in the system or in their person's interaction with the software. Is, right. is that some of the so, idea? So about 20 years ago, people were beginning to teach Haskell in industry. And a colleague who had taught such a course told me about it. It wasn't actually Haskell. It was something that was very much like Haskell. And the developers would come in and they'd learn, I'll use Haskell, they'd learn Haskell. And then they'd try to get their programs running and they'd get type errors. Right? And they'd react exactly the way you reacted. You know, this is annoying. But what happened when they got all the type errors gone, they were doing fairly simple programs. So it turned out when they got all the type errors gone, their program ran the first time. Yeah, yeah. That, and they that understood victory. the point of having the type error. So a more complicated program, that won't necessarily happen. But yeah. types are really helpful helping you get it right. And getting all these type errors is actually great because it's doing the debugging without having to come up with any test. Without page. running the program. Yeah, and I, I, I found that as, as someone coming from more you know, vanilla, regular JavaScript or Ruby, the common thing I would do is I would write a little bit and then run the tests or refresh my browser or whatever, you know, so read a little bit and then check the end result and back and forth. And I found that my working with TypeScript would be that oh, I've been working in this sort of state of flow where I've only been talking with my code editor, my text editor, and I haven't been flipping over to see what happens for the last potentially half an hour or whatever. And I found that I can really enter a state of flow because I'm not sort of trying to go back and forth and then forget what I was doing when I flipped back to my text editor. It's this sort of one conversation uh, without interruption. Okay, that makes sense. So yeah, I, I, yeah. I, so the types let you do a lot more without testing. Yeah, and I, I just I don't have to sort of switch contexts quite as often. I can really just think about it in one in one stream. And then a proof assistant is sort of the ultimate form of that, because if you write down proposition that means your code matches your specification and you prove that, which means it gets through the active type checker, then you're done, right? You've now proved that it works for every possible case. Yeah, that lack of errors says a lot more than running a few test cases or even right. thousands of test cases. Right. And some people say, once you've proved it, that's it, you're done. I actually think if you have a program and you've proved it correct, you still want to test it. But once you've proved it correct, you know you have a lot more assurance that's going to do what you want. Yeah, because you want to run it and find out if that specification means what you thought the specification exactly. meant. Exactly. Exactly. So when you were talking about working with a proof assistant, the model you sort of described is that you take a large problem and you break it down into smaller and smaller problems until eventually they become so obvious that you can just ask the computer to solve them for you. And I guess maybe the question is, where does human creativity and insight come into this process? Is it a purely mechanical process? And I think it comes into the choice of goals, that there's an insight about how you decompose a problem. There could be many different ways to decompose it. But I think it lets you think sort of just like you were saying, you can think at a sort of higher level. You can have a sort of higher level of discourse with your computer where you're not worried about, oh, will this be nil here? You're worried more about, is my specification right? Yeah. Yeah, the hard part. That's is right. And then the specification that. helps you understand what special cases like nil you need to worry about. And then the part where the human plays a role is not in thinking through what 
the implications of nil are in this case, it's thinking through how I can creatively problem solve. It's sort of a higher level of thinking. Right, so I'll give you an example of this. This happened to me a long time ago. I was a postdoc at the time. So this was early 80s in Oxford. And I was writing a text editor. This was before Emacs had conquered the world. So I was writing a text editor and I wanted to make a change to it to uh, make use of a cache so it didn't need to redisplay everything. And I only had an hour before class. I thought, I'll never get this running in the hour. I know, I'll write down the specification instead. So I wrote down the specification of how the cache should work. And it turned out that only took me about 10 minutes. And having done it, I realized, oh, wait, I can use this as a guide to writing the code. And I had the whole thing running and tested in the one hour before class because I wrote down the specification first. If I'd had more time, it would have taken me a lot more time because I wouldn't have thought to write down the specification first. Sounds not dissimilar to TDD. Maybe not, but it's not a matter of just writing out the test. It's a matter of writing out the actual formulas that define when this works. It's because I had a general formula, not just test cases, that I could go through the code and look for every place the formula was violated and say, right, this is the place where I need to insert some more code to make the cache work properly. Right. Compared to starting with the implementation, TDD forces you to at least think of examples, which is progress. To think of a general formula is going much, much farther. Right. So TDD is great, but specification is even better. One of the things you get with a dependently typed language like Agda is your specifications specify more. They say more than, for example, Haskell. So like in Haskell, I can say, if I add two lists, I get a new list. In Agda, I can say, if I add a list of list two and a list of list three, I get a new list, and its length is always five. Right. In fact, in Agda, you can define either one, and different things are useful at different times. But yeah, it gives you fine level control over what you want to say. So sort of you can think of as many properties as you want, and no matter how many there are, you can put them into your type. And it, it reduces the space of possible programs that are proofs of that proposition. And if the space is small enough, there's just the one that fits and you're done. Yes. Well, you might have to figure out which one that is. Agda might not be able to figure it out for you. Sometimes it can, but quite often you'll have to tell it which one it is and then it says, oh yeah, that works. At the same time, isn't that specification, is there a tension between putting all of that work into specification and it seems like if you over, I don't know if over-specify is the right word, but the more finely nuanced the specification is, you're putting a lot of work in there. Are you getting it all back out on the other end when you write the program? Right. I think there's a sweet spot where if you just write the code or just write examples, it's harder than if you first write the spec and then use that to guide you in what you're doing. And there are tools like QuickCheck that let you check certain properties without proving them. So like, let's say I'm defining something I know is commutative. I can write a property that says, okay, F applied to two arguments is the same as F applied to those arguments swapped. And that can generate lots of random arguments and check it for you. That's what QuickCheck does. So just using the property, I can then check the property very quickly. We're proving that property, proving that it's always commutative might be much more work, but I have much higher assurance. Yeah, well, QuickCheck, the nice thing about that is you can use QuickCheck or a clone of it in any language. That's right. I think writing down parts of your spec is always going to be better. Proving it can be very expensive and isn't for everybody. 
generally you only want to do the proof if it's worth the extra effort and expense of being sure that it always works. In your text editor, in that hour, you didn't prove the specification, but writing it down was incredibly Correct. valuable. Correct. Exactly. What's so your even sense? if you don't do proofs, specifications can be helpful. What's your sense as someone with a lot of experience with this of where it makes the most sense to spend your effort in writing specifications? Where do you want more detail and where are you okay with more hand-waving? A good example of where specification helps is compilers. So there's a fellow named Xavier Leroy, and he wrote out a specification for the C programming language and then a compiler, and that he proved his compiler met the specification. And somebody else decided to do something very much like Quick Check. They decided, we'll do random testing of compilers. We'll just generate a bunch of C programs at random, and we'll apply CompCert, that was the name of his compiler, to the program, and we'll apply new CC, and we'll apply... Did we mention Clang? Clang, Clang yes. Because that goes through this other low-level machine, whose name I'll forget. But anyhow, they took all three of those, and they just generated random programs, and they, they saw if they always gave the same answer. And in that way, they uncovered a large number of bugs that had never been seen before in GNU-CC and in Clang, but none in Compsit. <laughs> That's the thing about um, quick check, and that style of property test is called... Property-based um, testing. Yes, that's got style of property-based test. But that specifically, that strategy of property-based testing is when you have a known good solution, and so you write a new solution. You oh, using a known gold good solution, solution, right. In this case, you don't need a gold solution, right? You can just test different compilers against each other. Maybe none of them is perfect. Yeah, that's what you find. But yeah. unless they all have the same <laughs> error, you will find the error. But it's in this case, sort of... they found out that CompCert was perfect. It actually wasn't. I'm oversimplifying. There was an effort they found in CompCert. It was in the bit of it that wasn't proved. Nice. <laughs> this does get back to the idea that Jess mentioned earlier, which is you know that you meet the specification, but you don't know that the specification says what you think it does. So they had a that proof of a that, compiler yeah. that behaved the way the specification said, but did they have, how do they know that the specification is a real embodiment of the C standard? Well, in, in this case, right, the actual C compilers, when they differed from CompCert, it was always the other compiler that was wrong, right? They looked at it. That was always the other compiler that was wrong. So that yeah, but that's, that's not a proof. It gives you just... evidence that you've got the right specification. Right. That's evidence, but it's not a proof, right? I guess my, my question well, well, is... It does, it, it's an existential proof, and it proves that GCC and Clang, or whichever one it was, is wrong, because you've got a case that demonstrates it. Hopefully, uh, you don't need to duplicate that bug in the new compiler just because other uh, users of the compiler have become dependent on it. Is this like arguing about like what's proper grammar in the English language? It's like for me, it's not. It's not quite for me. It's if you don't have a type system where you can prove things, then you have all of your work ahead of you. You need to both figure out a way to specify the problem and figure out a way to turn the specification into a system without any help. If you have a language where you can write proofs, you still have half of your work ahead of you. You have to figure out a specification. The specification still has to match to the problem, but then you get help with the rest of it. You get help, but it's a lot more work. It will always be more expensive. I think always more expensive to do proofs than to just write the code and test it against your specification. So I guess my question so you, is more so like... So it has to be worth the expense. So places where it's worth the expense mm -hmm. are a compiler, which is widely used, an operating system. There's a mobile phone operating system called SCL4, 
that's been proved correct. In fact, what they did to do that was they wrote out the whole operating system in Haskell, proved the Haskell correct using Isabel, another assistant, and then translated the Haskell to C by hand, and then proved that the translation was correct, again using Isabel. And so they proved an entire mobile operating system correct in that way. So you can prove Ada- large, often used systems correct that way. I think another place where we're going to want to be doing proofs is for cryptocurrency. Because mm. systems like Ethereum, every six months, they lose a few tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of cryptocurrency due to some error in a program. So then all of a sudden, proving it correct becomes worth it. Intel, it costs them, again, I think a few hundred million dollars when they had to chip with an error in it. So after that, they became very interested mm. in doing proofs that their chips were correct. AWS uses TLA+, Plus, I think, to prove some of their algorithms that they use for EC2 and their underlying systems, very large scale. I didn't know about that. That's interesting. I should try to read up on that. If you know any papers on that, please send me a link. Oh, there was a talk at Strange Loop. <laughs> of course there was. <laughs> of course. So we're, we're talking about... You can send me a link to the talk then. I'll see if I can find it. We're talking about specifications in the large, you know, specifying an entire C compiler. When I've worked with these systems, I found a lot of value in specifications very much in the small. So like a thing that might only take a few lines to write, but I want to know that I wrote it correctly. And actually writing the type with enough detail makes the implementation fall out in a pretty obvious way. Yeah, that can often happen. Most of programming winds up making decisions. And if you can get those decisions made at the specification level, uh, writing that out can make implementing it in code a lot easier. Yes. It's also great, I think, for documentation. So I mentioned that my textbook exists on a URL. That URL is not a place you can go to buy the textbook. It is the textbook. It's freely available. And one reason for that is because you, I want you to download and execute it. Download the textbook and execute it? Right. The URL I gave before is the textbook. It's not just a place where you can buy the textbook. And that is the case because you're supposed to download the textbook. It's all an Agda program. It's a literate Agda program. And you run it. Or to do the exercises, you modify it and then run it. And writing the textbook in that way turned out to be really great because I know all the bits that are in Agda are correct. Because if I made an error, it wouldn't type check. So people are telling me about typos in the book all the time, but they are not <laughs> in the Agda bit. That's um, wonderful. And then the other great thing about doing it online is it's in GitHub. And when people tell me about – so it used to be people would send me emails saying, you got this wrong in your paper. But now what happens with this textbook is people send me pull requests. And instead of going back and fixing it myself, I just need to accept the pull request. So I strongly recommend – when you write something, do it on GitHub because it lets you collaborate very easily with other people. And then when Kaka, who helped me write the book, she wrote a little script. So now whenever we accept somebody's pull request, that person's name gets automatically listed, added to the acknowledgement section of the book. So, Phil, you said it sort of you're a bridge between both research and practice and between abstract and concrete. You know, you brought monads to functional programming. What have you learned in the time since you wrote that paper about how to translate abstract concepts so that practitioners can use them? Well, I've learned lots of people don't like the name Monad. They get scared of it. 
I think it's really funny that developers tend to get scared of mathematics because it's written in italic, but they're perfectly fine with JavaScript, right? I find something like JavaScript very scary because of all the special corner cases. Uh, and mathematics much easier to deal with because the whole point of mathematics is you get rid of every single corner case you can. Mathematics is basically about getting rid of corner cases. JavaScript is about the opposite. JavaScript is a lot squishier, but the mathematics is, is smooth. Yeah. So in the Monads paper, you your approach, if I remember correctly, was you introduced the model and then you went through case analysis. You presented a number of examples of using this structure in practice. I think state was one of them. Would Is that the yes. approach you would take today, again, if you wrote the paper again? First thing to say about monads is it was an old idea from category theory. Many people worked on it. And then the real insight that it applied to programming languages came from Eugenio Maggi, who wrote a nice paper about applying it to semantics. And I realized, oh, we could use exactly the same idea, not just to structure the maths, but to structure our actual functional programs. So that was Bringing my contribution. Across the propositions to types bridge, perhaps. I hadn't been thinking in terms of propositions as types then, but later I found out that indeed, remember I said every interesting computing idea has the corresponding interesting logic idea. Somebody else, three researchers at Cambridge, wrote a paper pointing out that monads actually correspond to a particular kind of modal logic. And that Audi was one actually, of the times when I began to understand, oh, propositions as types isn't just a cute idea. It applies to lots of important things. So, yes, in the paper I gave lots of examples. And one thing I discovered after I wrote the paper is, and people started using them, there were lots and lots of monad tutorials written. And generally based on vague analogies, like was there a monad is like a burrito or something like that. And I found the mathematics, just give a few examples, much clearer than using a vague analogy. Yeah, because so, burritos are squishy. And I, the whole I, point is that you don't have to be squishy with math. You can be precise. Yeah, like a smooth, polished pebble. So I felt that it was great that people want to write monad tutorials. But I felt that most, very often people had done this without going back and reading the original papers that I'd written. I felt that the original paper was actually clearer. I wish that some of the people who'd written tutorials had read the original paper first and maybe done things that way. There were a few other tutorials that people did that were lots more examples, and those were great. Many of them were just based on analogy. I think were less helpful than the original work. So it was nice that people wanted to do it. This is something I got from reading Feynman. Whenever you're doing something, go back and read the original papers. You will learn a lot from them that you won't learn from the other people who rewrote it later. So it's really worth going back and reading the original papers. And something else seems like a lot of developers could learn from, because it seems like listening to people who have been in the field a lot longer than me, um, there's things that we are reinventing now, often in JavaScript, <laughs> that it's a problem that's already been solved. Right. So just doing a literature search before you start in on doing something is always a good idea. Yeah, you, you can't find read something relevant, actually read the paper. Yeah. You can't read all can't of read, everything. No. no but you but can you find can, the relevant stuff and things. read that. And then those, those like monad tutorials that are going to pop up, the information that comes to you is kind of random and use that as the tip of a thread and try to go back to the source of the thread to get the start of it and everything in between will make more sense. The monad tutorials yeah. for me are all a bunch of blindfolded people describing the elephant. They get a bit of it. They have a particular viewpoint. 
And of course, if you were if you were wearing a blindfold, you wouldn't know to mix analogies here. You wouldn't know where the original paper is, you know, or to, or to that you should be looking for it. So instead of blindfolded people describing an elephant, you should think of people in a dark room describing an elephant, and there they should be is. lighting their candle. Mm. Well, this is all. This is tied it off in a nice bow for us. Thank you so much for coming. Well, thank on the you show. guys. I, I really enjoyed this. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you so much for your time. It was great to meet you. Thank you very much. I have a reflection. So we've been talking a lot about mathematics. What's it good for? Why are people so afraid of it? I mentioned when we were looking at how proof assistants work that there is still a, an opportunity for human creativity, even as you're doing this rigorous process. And I think one of the issues with mathematics is that the way we're taught it makes us hate it. There's a great book called uh, A Mathematician's Lament by Paul Lockhart, which describes in part how the education system doesn't really show people what math is. It just shows you, for example, geometry isn't about shapes. It's about rigorously putting things line by line until you have a proof. Whereas math for me, even in my own limited experience, is a highly creative pursuit. You get to be very... I don't know a better word than creative. It, it's it's a field that isn't rigorous to the extent that you can't have fun or to the extent that you can't create, find new ideas. It's not boring. It's not about numbers. It's not about the way you were taught in uh, high school. It, it really is a, a fun, creative field. You can slice those zombies in lots of different ways and you never know what shape they'll come out. Thank you, Rain. One thing that I latched onto was the books on the foundations of programming languages, both uh, you mentioned Benjamin Pierce and yours. There's a difference between learning the foundations of programming and learning the skills of programming. So some people are just like, what does this have to do with what I'm doing? I write JavaScript and I should just learn more about JavaScript. Okay, that's a skill. But underlying that, our foundations of how programs work at all and how we can think about them with precision and clarity and also those specifications that communicate to people as well. So, so there is something to go back and look at foundations and that kind of understanding is separate from skills. Yep, that's fair. Uh, Shante, did you have a reflection? Yeah, I'm still here. And here's the thing. I, I'm one of those people that hates math. And so this, this conversation, frankly, felt a little exclusive. But here's my reflection on that, or my question, rather, for the group is, how do we make conversations like this more accessible and inclusive for people who maybe have a phobia or who perhaps like have learning disabilities or things like that, that they're like, this is just way too technical? How do we make it more human? How do we how do we invite people in? And like Rain was mentioning, like, how do we uh, demonstrate and remind people that it's creative, that math can be really fun? I don't have an answer, but I would love to hear what the group is thinking. I think by you saying math can be really fun, that really is an important thing to say. And you're talking about being exclusionary. There are lots of people who feel that math is not for them. And I think it's important to do a lot to say, well, no, actually, it is for you, too, if you approach it the right way. I think most people can appreciate and enjoy and use math, all of those things. But many people feel that they can't, which is too bad. I also wouldn't say that you shouldn't be let near computing if you don't like math or if you don't want to do math. There are other important things as well, like writing good documentation. Right. 
you'll always write better code if you know math. But there are other things like writing good documentation that aren't necessarily about knowing the maths. Yeah, and the thing, the other interesting thing here is like I'm thinking about um, just sort of society and like how we how we think about the future generations to come and how they're going to maybe get into this field. And so as we have more advances in technology that in some ways make our human brain a little bit uh, more lazy and give us a pass, like how, how do we kind of maintain this purity and, and the math that you're kind of you know discussing here today? Because I, I feel like it's, it's really advanced and there's, there's a beauty to it, right? I don't understand it, but it's really interesting and complex. So how what's going to happen to the future of education and the students who have newer technologies to say, I don't really need to do that. I think the new technologies will make it easier rather than harder to teach maths. I hope so. A big part of advancing as a society is finding better ways to teach things so that it takes less overhead to learn what we already know and you can build on that to make more. Right now, functional programming and maths are very much minority streams in computing. I'm hoping that if you look at things 50 or 100 years down the line, it is important to have that kind of long-term perspective that we will find more people trained in these things, that it's less of a minority thing and more of a majority thing. If you follow the Programming Language Foundation's and Agda book, you are learning math as you do that, because propositions are types, but types are also propositions. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a math textbook, but it's also a programming textbook. So if you like programming, I hope you can follow it, but you'll also learn maths along the way, hopefully painlessly. Because lots of us, Jacob, um, tell me if you're in this category, have learned skills of programming. And it's not too late. In fact, you're in a great place having learned the skills and found programming useful and wanting to get better at it. It's a great time to go pick up some foundations. Yeah, that's right. It's a bridge back from programming to math. It's true. I don't have a CS background and... So I've learned a lot. I've learned plenty of skills with programming. And then I see over over here people on Twitter or whatever talking about or in this conversation talking about these really interesting things. And yeah, there's a switch in my brain that says like, oh, well, that's I'm just going to have to draw a wall around that because that's not for me. And yeah, that this conversation is making me think about like, oh, there's no reason there needs to be a wall there. It's just it's just something I don't know about yet. You know, The, the other thing I was thinking about is that. Like having the ability to get a really quick, um, seamless feedback from as you are talking, as you are writing a program. Because again, like the, what my, my common experience is when I write a, a program in Ruby or for example, you know, it, it's to flip over to my terminal, run the test and then see what happened. But the thing is, is no matter what kind of test I'm writing, there's always some, that's all, that's always going to be a indirect way for getting feedback because there's always some layer in between what I wrote and what I get back. But when I can type and literally as I am typing, find out if what I'm saying actually makes sense, then uh, I, I feel like that would be that is just such a much better way to interact with my program or the program that I am building. And yeah, I want to be thinking about like, how can I find ways to be getting instantaneous feedback like that? Because I, I think that can really aid in the way that I think and interact with my program. Jacob, the, the thing you're describing is a joint cognitive system. It's you yeah. and the computer working together. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is a great word for it. There is a book called Joint Cognitive Systems. There are actually two of them. <laughs> is, that, is it about software? It's about specifically? Joint co- no, it's about no, it's um, more general. systems 
complex systems that include humans, where humans and those systems work together to do things. So, for example, a pilot okay. in a cockpit is a joint cognitive system. Yeah. And then, then that's a question like, I would really hope that a joint, that that joint cognitive system is going to be very seamless, right? <laughs> that the pilot. It's a way to. Re- <laughs> you, you would hope. Yes. It's, it's a yeah. way to reframe the traditional human machine model that came from Shannon, where, you know, you say a thing to a computer and then it thinks and then it says a thing to you and then you think and then you say a thing to a computer where it's more about you and the the context the machine the computer whatever it is you as a part of the system working together in a cycle of receiving feedback and acting on it to change things and so on to achieve goals yeah thanks for listening to our episode of greater than code we invite you to support us on patreon to keep this show going you can visit patreon.com slash greater than code